Three Dog Thursday on the Sports Gambling Podcast Network presented by MyBookie.ag. The UFC is back on Saturday night and MyBookie has a $49 risk-free bet. And if you use the promo code SGP, you can get $1,000 in bonus bets. That's MyBookie.ag. Use our promo code SGP, MyBookie.ag slash SGP to play, win, and get paid with MyBookie. We're also brought to you in part by the Madden Mayhem Simulation Tournament ongoing right now. We're giving away $10,000 in MyBookie credits to the winners with the best brackets in the Madden Mayhem. Plus, you can bet on all of the games, including live game wagering for these simulations in the Madden Tournament. Get all the info at sportsgamblingpodcast.com slash Madden. That's sportsgamblingpodcast.com slash Madden for more on the Madden Simulation Tournament. We're also brought to you in part by Ace Per Head. Ace is the leader in pay-per-head providers, and they make it super easy to start your own sports book. Plus, Ace is offering up to six weeks free over at aceperhead.com SGP. That's aceperhead.com SGP. We're also brought to you in part by Cushy Dreams. Cushy Dreams is a new company with a full lineup of premium smokable CBD, and it's now shipping legally to all 50 states. And if you use the promo code SGP, you get 15% off. That's Cushy Dreams, K-U-S-H-Y Dreams.com with the promo code SGP. Football fans, it's time to go on the record for this week's matches in pro and college football with just one catch. We're only interested in underdogs. Who can keep it close if not pull the outright upset? Time to find out. It's Three Dog Thursday. Now here's your host, TJ Reed. Yes, indeed. Welcome back as we head to Memorial Day weekend and sports starting to resume. We're all about it here as part of Three Dog Thursday. Hope everybody is still being safe. I know the uh, COVID-19 pandemic continues to go on, but for a lot of the country, a lot of the United States, it has lessened to the point where states have begun to open up. That's a good thing. We're starting to get some sports back. UFC, NASCAR, soon-to-be golf, and we hope the NBA and the NHL will complete their seasons. Will baseball ever get off the ground? We're here to talk about all of it as part of the only digital radio show that is typically devoted to those underdogs. Right now, we don't have a lot in the way of games. We do have NASCAR racing, including that Coca-Cola 600, their longest race of the year that is always on Memorial Day weekend Sunday night. That one coming up on Fox. We'll have the uh, the exhibition golf showdown before that with Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning playing against Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady uh, at Medalist Club in Florida in a unique match play format. Uh, very interesting. Tiger and Peyton are going to be the slight favorites in that one. I don't go against Tiger Woods in matches. Even if, even if Tiger was going against all three guys, Phil, Peyton, Tom Brady, I'd still probably go against uh, go with Tiger Woods. Don't go against him uh, in match play competitions. But anyway, that'll be going on Sunday afternoon. Sunday night is the NASCAR race. 
uh, there from Charlotte, uh, part of their four races in 10 days, as we've been telling you about. So sports starting to resume in, in some forms and fashions. Anyway, glad that you have found us, however you've done so, either through the Sports Gambling Podcast network of shows, off of their network feed, off of a link from sportsgamblingpodcast.com, off a social media link from me or from the show. You can follow me at Buck Sideline Guide, B-U-C, Buck Sideline Guy for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and their uh, upcoming season. Anxious to see what Tom Brady can do uh, for them when we talk NFL. So follow me at Buck Sideline Guy. Follow the show at Three Dog Thursday. Subscribe to the show as well. However you found it, you can go to Apple Podcasts, you can go to Spotify, Google Podcasts, Spreaker. Subscribe away to Three Dog Thursday. Show comes automatically to you. Keep rating and reviewing. Several of you have been doing that recently, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts. If you're on Spotify, rate and review, and the podcast will obviously uh, move up as well. All right, so we've got our, our usual uh, guest straight ahead, handicapper Brian Edwards of MajorWager.com. He does a fantastic job of analyzing and handicapping sports. Uh, he is big into the UFC. We'll be talking with him about their three fight cards that all took place within a one-week time period in Florida in Jacksonville without crowds, and also looking ahead to their next fight card, which will be out west in Las Vegas. Brian will have some thoughts on that. I want to talk to him first, though, about the Last Dance documentaries, the Chicago Bulls, that final championship season, 1997-98, the sixth title uh, in eight years uh, for Michael, for Scotty, for Phil Jackson, for that whole crew. I'll I'll talk uh, some with Brian about that. Uh, And and also a little college football conversation. The SEC contemplating a nine-game schedule with only conference teams, nobody playing out-of-conference games, an interesting scenario. Not that this is definite, but it's apparently being kicked around because of the the concerns of the flu season, the COVID-19 resurfacing in the late fall and in the winter. You maybe want to be done with the uh, with the college football regular season. If you're only playing conference games, it'd be easier to get done quicker and have a more equitable schedule. So anyway, we'll get Brian's feelings on that. We will then turn to one of the great uh, personalities on sports radio and in the sports media in Chicago, Mike North, back on the Three Dog Thursday podcast. Northy uh, will be here, longtime sports radio host in the Chicago market. You now hear him on the ESPN 1000 station and through iHeartRadio every Friday night with the Odds Couple show that they have. Mike also with the Bear Room uh, uh, Bears uh, Bar Room uh, broadcast, bearsbarroom.com and the Bears Bar Room podcast. So uh, Mike, with both of those outlets, longtime radio host on the Fame Score in Chicago, the Score Sports Station was there every day during the, the Michael Jordan championship runs uh, of the Chicago Bulls. So I'm, I'm going to get Mike's uh, thoughts on the documentary, how it finished, those wins over the Jazz. He was there in the building in Salt Lake for Game 6 and the clinching win uh, by the Bulls in 1998, which finished off the second set of three straight championships. So I look forward to reminiscing with Mike, having some fun, getting some insight from him as the show closed up. And then Matt Zimmick is back with me. I love Matt's insight on all things, whether it's college football, college basketball that we've had him on uh, before. Matt also big into the tennis world as well. The tennis uh, tours, the major championships have ground to a halt because of COVID-19. I'm going to get some insight from him on that. But first, I want Matt's perspective. He's out West. He's a big sports fan. He's a big historian. He was in Phoenix during the Bulls championship run in 93. Matt also was in Seattle when the Bulls defeated the Sonics back in the in the 1996 championship series. So he's got a Western perspective 
on all those teams, when you when you think about Lakers, Blazers, Suns, Sonics, and Jazz, all denied by Michael Jordan. Matt Zimmick's got some insight there. And I also want to talk, I stumbled the other night. You know, we're all watching older sports online, on cable sports channels. They don't have current games to show, so they're showing historical great games, memorable games, Hall of Fame players, Hall of Hall of Fame coaches, great teams. I stumbled on the Wimbledon Men's Tennis Championship 1980 Bjorn Borg, John McEnroe, incredible drama of their fourth set tiebreaker that is arguably the greatest tiebreaker uh, in the history of tennis for what was on the line and who was playing. And I want to talk to Matt Zimmick about that. And look, this is an iconic moment uh, in sports. I mean, if you if you talk about Jordan and that last dance shot, everybody knows uh, about that. If I if I say to you USA hockey team and Michael Ruzioni and the goal, everybody knows that goal against the Russians. That was the same year, 1980, as the tiebreaker of Borg and McEnroe. Uh, again, you you think if I say you know Eli Manning to David Tyree moment. Uh, in the in the Super Bowl or Scott Norwood wide right where the Giants won again uh, in a Super Bowl those famous moments the, those oca- those iconic moments uh, when you're clinching a championship or when a, when a great championship is in progress you say tiebreaker in major championship men's tennis that that's the greatest tiebreaker maybe uh, of all time so we'll talk to Matt about that looking forward to all of my guests and their thoughts coming up straight ahead. Again, on the Last Dance documentary, I'll probably say this a couple of more times as the show goes on, just riveting TV. I found it fascinating that the director said, hey, we were we were still making the final episode uh, just days before it aired. A week ago Thursday, when it was Three Dog Thursday, they were still editing episode 10 to get it finished to air Sunday night for 9 and 10. So I thought that was interesting. And and for all of the, the slings and arrows about how it's being done, Michael Jordan had full say-so in his participation in the docu- documentary and the documentary being released through NBA Entertainment through ESPN, so of course you were have to you would have to go along with his wishes uh, on and his slant and his take. But I thought the do- the documentary very even handed. We'll we'll talk about that as uh, as Three Dog Thursday unfolds with my guest with Brian Edwards with uh, Mike North with Matt Simic. We'll have thoughts on the documentary and all around it. So. I thought it it portrayed criticism of him. It dealt with flaws in his life and in his character. Uh, And and the guy still goes down. I I hope that people now fully understand that we're too young to remember we're not around, that are millennials, that are sub-25-year-olds, that were little kids or not even born when the Bulls were doing this in 1990. Long before you thought LeBron James was the greatest, and you can be wrong if you want to, or even if you thought that Kobe Bryant was greater than Michael Jordan or even an equal, Kobe Bryant was a fantastic player at that one championship, but he was not Michael Jordan. And if he had been around in the 1990s, you know, you can make the argument Kobe and Shaq against those Bulls teams. If they play in six championship series, do the Lakers win one of them? Probably. Do the Lakers win more than one of them? Probably not. Would the Bulls possibly have won all six times against the Shaq and Kobe Lakers because of Michael Jordan? You could make that argument. And if you think that's crazy, then how is it that Shaq with Penny Hardaway couldn't get it done with Orlando? How is it that the Knicks with Patrick Ewing, the big man, couldn't get it done against the Bulls? And we'll talk about this uh, some more with uh, uh, with Brian Edwards, with Matt Zimmick, about the whole the, the era of the center, the Shaq, the Akeem Olajuwon, the, the Patrick Ewing, 
Parrish and McHale uh, with the Celtics. Kareem before that with the Lakers as well and the, and the Milwaukee Bucks before that. The era of the center kind of began to be phased out in the 2000s, but it was still around uh, for the Bulls in the 1990s. And, and, the, and the Bulls never had the dominant scoring, uh, big emphasis of the offense center that the other teams did, and it didn't matter. That's why I'm so confident that they would have been able to beat if they played Clyde Drexler and Akeem Olajuwon six times in the final, same thing. It's probably five to one, but it might have been six nil, unless something happens to twenty three, to Jordan. So we've got much more to talk about on the last dance. Uh, we're going to have fun with all of these different subjects. Are we going to have a baseball season? The players and owners have to agree. I understand the arguments on both sides, but let's get it figured out and play at least part of the season later this summer. The players have no right, none. Zero to badmouth about lack of, of money or financial concerns when they've already been paid to not play in April and in early May. They've already been paid. We've covered this. We've talked about it. You've got to find a way to start the season up. And I understand the owners are greedy and they've done underhanded things to the players in the past, but find a way to work out playing half the season. It's less on the players. It may be less money for the players, but it's less games. And get to the postseason that everybody wants uh, anyway in October with less games to do so. It's a unique situation. Find a way to work it out, whether you're going to go to home cities, which I still think is crazy, or come to Florida for the neutral site, maybe Texas for the Central Central Division teams, maybe Phoenix for the Western teams, and play at the neutral sites and do that for 90 days this summer. Teams, uh, players can bring their family members. Coaches can bring their family members. Come, come stay at the spring training sites if you need to. Do it that way. Let's see what it, baseball can work out, and the clock is ticking. you got to have some kind of spring training for at least two or three weeks. It's crazy for the pitchers in their arms to say, hey, uh, we're only going to do this for a few days and work out, and then you got to be ready to pitch. you got to ramp up uh, for that a little bit. Let's get that going in June, and if baseball can start July 1 and play July, August, and September and play in a 90-game schedule or 82-game schedule, so be it. Let's go. Figure it out. We're all about it here on Three Dog Thursday. All right, time to get to it with our guests. Again, Brian Edwards will be straight ahead. Mike North and Matt Zimmick later on in the program. Let's get rolling with a lot of last dance talk and more on Three Dog Thursday. Yes, indeed. Ready to roll on and head into the Memorial Day weekend. You've already heard me give some thoughts and opinions on the last dance documentary. Let's get some more thoughts on that. Also, some UFC talk and even some college football future odds and more with Brian Edwards back with me. Uh, he is uh, outstanding handicapper, majorwager.com, Vegas Insider. You see his stuff uh, on both of those different places. Good to have you back here. And uh, okay, so I had some feelings on the end of the Last Dance documentary. You've got the floor for a moment or two. Welcome. And how do you think? We knew what was going to happen, but how do you think it all wrapped up with the final two episodes? Oh, man, I thought it was awesome. Um, I know that Horace Grant and uh, Scotty Pippen aren't, aren't real happy with it. Um, but uh, I mean, I thought it was I thought it was great stuff. Um, obviously, Grant not happy with uh the uh, the connotation from Jordan that he was the rat to Sam Smith uh, from the Jordan Rules book, and I think he's kind of harped on Pippen, you know, not going in the game in that game three against the Knicks. Uh, harped on that a little more than all the great things he did, but whatever the case, I, I think the I think that young people what they should get out of this is, and I, we may have even talked about this a few weeks back, is that the greatness of Jordan 
um, is is uh, defined in how how many great great I mean great Hall of Fame players didn't get rings because of him Barkley, yeah. Ewing, Stockton, Malone, and who knows if Drexler or Akeem the Dream would have gotten titles had he not gone to baseball. Um, and I'm I'm leaving out some oh Reggie Miller. Um, who else am I? Gary not, Payton. Gary, Gary Payton. Well, right with the Sonics. The heat, but yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. Yes, but, later on. Yeah, but yeah, like Ewing and Barkley. I mean, these guys were all on the dream team, Hall of Famers, Stockton, Malone, and none of them got titles because Jordan denied them in different years, six different times. It's uh, it's pretty wild. Kevin Johnson, uh, another guy in Phoenix, obviously. So yeah, Jordan was is the goat in my opinion. Well, and as I said uh, there at the beginning, that uh, and I want you to follow up on this. There, there's no doubt that there were other great players in and around that era. Stockton and Malone are two of them, uh, and then and then you go forward uh, to what Kobe Bryant and Shaq were able to do, and they won three championships in a row with the Lakers. Uh, you can talk about the Spurs winning the five titles overall, although they never won back to back, much less five. Uh, or or three in a row, six in eight years, and you can talk about LeBron James, who's who's clearly uh, the premier player of the 2010s, uh, with what he has been able to do, if not all championships, but in terms of just overall. But again, he's got five losses in NBA Finals. Michael Jordan never lost in a final series, and it was basically because he was not going to let his teams lose. Brian, give me a little more on that. Uh, it, it's tough to beat. Perfect. It's tough to beat six for six. It's tough to beat the guy was not even right down to that last shot of that last championship in Utah. He was going to be the reason you weren't going to win. Yeah, and look, I mean, I think everybody that makes the argument LeBron was is or you know better than MJ is that he's such a, a physical specimen. But like you mentioned just now, you know, five times he's lost in the finals, and think about all the times that he's just had total duds in huge games in his career. In the Mavs series, when he was with the Heat, he had just some duds in that series. Even at the end of his first run in Cleveland before he went to Miami, that game six at Boston, he just pulled a total no-show. His body language was dog manure. I mean, like, you know, you never got that from Jordan. I mean, Jordan always found a way to get it done and so many times LeBron has shown that mentally uh he was he's never been on par with MJ again phenomenal series even though we knew what was going to happen uh we're going to talk a little bit more in a little bit here with Mike North uh great Chicago radio personality sportscaster personality on on you know the, the birth of sports talk radio in Chicago in the late 80s and the early 90s it was all about Michael Jordan's rise and those championships so Mike's going to have much more uh on this over overall from your opinion though um, out, out of those t- 10 episodes, I mean, I'm no Bulls fan, and, and you and I are, are both disconnected from Chicago before we get Mike on. It was riveting to watch this and relive this one more time, right, and, and see it all. No question about it. And, I mean, I love it for you know, young people. Like, my nephew's been loving it. You know, got, you know, people that are too young to remember MJ and to see those the biggest moments uh, of his career, it, yeah, it was just – it was good stuff. I mean, I'm sure I'll watch it over and over again into the future. I thought David Aldridge was terrific. Yeah. Uh, you know, some of the guests that they had, uh, you know, 
talk. I thought Phil was great uh, the way he explained things. Yeah, it was. It was one of. The, I mean, it's right there with OJ Made in America and the show The Wire. Some of the best television I've ever watched. <laughs> now the the Wire make believe OJ and all that, that really happened. The Jordan thing really happened. I know what you mean. But you're right. Great crossover. Whether you're talking about uh, them sitting with Barack Obama, former President Barack Obama. Or, or they're sitting there with Bob Costas, uh, reliving all of it, and on and on uh, with all the all the different stories. So love that. All right, let's transition off of that, uh, Brian. And and you are big into Ultimate Fighting, the MMA Ultimate Fighting Championship. The UFC has now put three cards in the books over a seven day period. Their three fight cards have revitalized the sport uh, since the outbreak of the coronavirus, and so uh, now they take a little bit of a break. Uh, you can kind of recap a little bit the latest UFC card from last weekend, and now they're going to wait, what, a couple of weeks, not this weekend, but the following week, and they will move to Las Vegas for their next show. You've written about it on MajorWager.com. Give me a little more insight real quick. Yeah, so um, they're off this weekend, but May 30th, and by the way, they didn't want to be off this weekend, but they they sensed that Nevada wasn't quite ready to open up. But um, Nevada Athletic Commission is going to let them uh, have the fights at the UFC Apex Center, which is where they have the Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series, and that's where they film the Ultimate Fighter. Um, and obviously, with no fans, those are very small. It's a very small, intimate uh, little building. So it was, it's going to be the former welterweight champ. Uh, Tyron Woodley, who's a minus 175 favorite, taking on Gilbert Burns in a 170-pound welterweight contest. Burns has won five in a row, and I won't commit to it till next week, but I'm pretty interested in Burns. Woodley is now 38. He's been out a year and a half. He got absolutely destroyed in his title fight to lose the belt. And he had all kind of side stuff going on. He was in a, in a movie. Uh, he's doing this rapping stuff. I just don't think he is. I, I just think he's, I think he's done really. Mm. And, and I think Burns could be a live dog uh, next week. As for yeah, last week, you know, 32 fights during the three shows, they administered 1100 tests. And other than Jacare and two members of his team that had ridden up in the car with him from Orlando to Jacksonville, those three guys tested positive, but everybody else negative. I mean, here we are, what, four or five days removed from it. There's no reports of anybody being sick. There's really no negativity um, whatsoever, man. I thought it was a roaring success. The fights, obviously, at UFC 249, those fights were great. But I thought the other two cards had outstanding uh, fights as well. And uh, I thought the UFC did a great job, took it, took advantage of having that spotlight, uh, you know, of the sports world. And um, they'll get back to it again next Saturday. Well, and you make a good point, too. You're going to have to have contingencies. And Dana White and the UFC and the Florida officials were ready for what happens if somebody tests positive. It'll be no different there in Vegas, but it's the, it's the same thing. NASCAR, now that they're back on the track, uh, racing four races. We're in the middle of four races in 10 days. They've got their Coca-Cola 600 on Sunday night. Someone may very well test positive in NASCAR on one of the teams, one of the drivers. What are you going to do? How are you going to handle it? The same thing when the PGA Tour uh, resumes coming in June. And then eventually we're going to get to basketball and hockey playoffs. You've got to have the contingency plans. I don't know that you have to go to the extent that Major League Baseball, which apparently has like the Encyclopedia Britannica series of scenarios of what do we do if somebody tests positive. Again, they got many more games to play because they haven't even started yet, but they've got all these different scenarios they're trying to run by and agree to. My point is you just got to be ready for it, right, Brian? You got to be ready 
a deal with what happens. Obviously, um, Sakurai's fight was off when that happened. And then how do you handle the isolation part? What's your procedures? Does it, does it maybe jeopardize the entire card? If not, why not? They were ready. And so commendable for Dana White and, uh, and UFC on, on that point. Hey, one other quick thought here. It's interesting that in boxing, Bob Arum, the promoter from Top Rank Boxing that promotes Tyson Fury, the new uh, WBC World Heavyweight Champ, they're supposed to have the third fight with Deontay Wilder. It was supposed to pre-coronavirus outbreak to have been a July fight. The rumored rescheduled date was October. So interestingly, Aram is now saying it doesn't look like that fight is going to stay in Las Vegas because we don't believe they can have fans even in the fall. I don't know, Brian, if he is maybe posturing some. I don't know if maybe they were they are still going to consider Las Vegas even with some fans. I just find it interesting that he is speaking on the record and saying we may not be fighting here in Vegas. We may not be fighting in the United States with no fans. We got to go somewhere where there are fans and we can charge some significant money for some people to come and tickets and live gate for Fury Wilder 3. I've said all that. What do you make of that? That the threat is that fight won't be in Vegas and maybe not in the United States or not even in the UK, the United Kingdom, uh in England or anywhere else. Fury's homeland. What do you make of all that? Well, did, did boxing get a ton of money from the gate because the seats up close? Are oh, so sure, expensive? sure. For example, okay. the Fury Wilder live gate was seventeen million, somewhere around there, seventeen, wow. eighteen million. But realistically, right. you're even if you had a quarter of the crowd there or half the crowd there, that's probably only going to represent half of that revenue anyway. So they got to be looking at alternative ways for revenue anyway, right? No matter where they fight. But what are your thoughts now with all that info? Right. Well, um, you know, I, I think UFC obviously misses the, the money from the gate, but I mean, they sold 700,000 uh, pay-per-view buys. So, um, and then the other shows, you know, obviously ESPN uh, is flipping the bill. So, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know what to make of it. I think that the, a third fight between uh, Fury and Deontay Wilder would do great uh, pay-per-views. Do you, how, how many pay-per-views do they do for the second one? Do you somewhere, know like somewhere in the neighborhood of 900,000, something like that. And it was a, a large yeah. ask. Good. It was like a seventy nine ninety nine. It was the largest heavyweight uh, title revenue producing pay-per-view since Lennox Lewis, Mike Tyson, 2002. So wow. yes, they're banking on getting that 800, 900,000, a million yeah. pay-per-view buys. What, what Aram is saying is we can't just forego $17 million and right. have no fans. It doesn't make business sense. Again, Brian, I don't know how much that is posturing sitting here in May that you sure. may be able to have some fans in Vegas. I don't know. Well, you know, Dana doesn't, you know, has been reluctant to, to – he says he can get $20 million off a gate with Conor McGregor, and he's been reluctant to book him at Fight Island because of that. But apparently McGregor wants to fight so bad that they probably are going to put him on uh, in Fight Island. So, you know, Dana's dealing the same thing with McGregor. Interesting uh, on that. All right, let's segue one more time. Brian Edwards is with me here from Vegas Insider, MajorWager.com. We're always looking ahead to the futures – College football, very interesting that a lot of schools have begun to say, hey, practice facilities will be able to open up later in the summer. We anticipate that we're going to have practice, that we're going to be able to play games. 
Um, isn't it interesting that Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, has now relented that pro sports teams, pro teams, can play in empty stadiums starting in June, whoever it is, whatever the sport. The next step would obviously be college teams being allowed to do the same thing under the California umbrella. You're looking ahead to some futures. If all things are equal and we're playing games in conferences, there are a couple of teams you're interested in. I believe the SEC will be playing, even with no fans for this year. And one of the teams you're looking at for future odds is Texas A&M. Tell me more about their win total and why you're looking at them. Uh, well, I, I don't really have a hard play that I, um, with them that I've uh, decided on. But A&M's got eight starters back on offense and defense. A uh, bit of a disappointment last year in Jimbo's second year going eight and five straight up. But they've got a senior quarterback who's been about a three-and-a-half-year starter, Kellen Mond, 52-24 to 24 career TDI&T ratio. Their win total is nine-and-a-half. Um, They've got Isaiah Spiller back, who nearly rushed for 1,000 yards in his true freshman season, 5.4 yards per carry. I've got them winning seven, and I have them losing at Bama, and then four swing games um, at Mississippi State, at Auburn, at South Carolina, and versus LSU. I would probably lean to Auburn in that game, but the road team seems to dominate that head-to-head series, so who knows what will happen on the Plains. Um, I would think A&M will probably be a little bit of a favorite at Mississippi State, uh, but you know, you know, Leach has got KJ Costello, the grad transfer from Stanford, who was second team uh, All Pac-12 two seasons ago, and you know, we'll see how South Carolina is. I mean, I think they, that could be a dangerous game for A&M, and then LSU at home. Uh, I would think A&M would be a slight favorite. So, I mean, I think it's actually a good win total at nine and a half. I, I see A&M, um, you know. Probably, you know, if they can get the game uh, at the games at Mississippi State and at South Carolina and beat LSU at home, they'll have a great shot at 10-2. and two. Uh, We shall see. Interesting. Before we get to your other team, which is a Big Ten team, there is a rumor, at least it's being discussed, a scenario, possible scenario due to the potential of the flu season, potential flare-up again of coronavirus this fall slash winter that the SEC is at least talking about doing away with teams out of conference games. Uh, and you have it in front of you. I don't have it in front of me. Texas A&M out of conference schedule. Do you still have that in front of you uh, early in the year? Yeah. Yeah. What, what is that for them? Uh, it would be Vanderbilt, so obviously they would love. And I guess you haven't finished explaining it. If that game is added once again, well, right. If they would add Vanderbilt, do you have their out of conference games though in front of you? Because they're looking at doing oh, away. I mean, like in yes. in Alabama's yes. case, they would be doing away with the USC, the the Southern Cal game. Who would Texas A and M yes. lose in this scenario? Uh, Abilene Christian, yeah. North Texas. Colorado and Fresno State are their four okay. non-cons all at home. And Colorado, the only Power Five. And, of course, uh, A&M did play Clemson the last two years of the out-of-conference schedule. So, anyway, one of the things being discussed is that the SEC would only play conference games. They would add a ninth conference game, and I'm about to explain how, do away with the non-conference games and theoretically play nine weeks in a row to make sure you got all the games in, but also for integrity and equity, 
for being equal with everybody, for it to be equitable, that you would be playing the same schedule of conference games right in a row. So if you had to stop, for some reason you stop after five games or after seven games, everybody's played the same number of conference games. And you could determine by tiebreakers, whatever it is, if you had to. So that's an interesting part of the theory. And one of the things being discussed, not saying this is what they're going to do, only play nine games, no conference game, and uh, no out-of-conference game, and the ninth game is the 2020 schedule um, with uh, with matchups of the Western teams playing against the Eastern teams, and those would happen this year. So in other words, new games this year would be Ole Miss at Tennessee. You mentioned Texas A&M. They would play at Missouri. Alabama at someone's Florida Gators, Brian Edwards. I know you're going to have a thought on that in a second. Arkansas, Georgia. Auburn, South Carolina, LSU at Kentucky, Mississippi State at Vanderbilt. Those are scheduled 2021 games that could go on this year's schedule with the Eastern teams all hosting those games. What do you make of what I just laid out about nine games only, no out-of-conference, the 2021 crossover games become this year's games with the East teams all as the home teams? What do you make of that? Well, just this is my fandom, not really my uh, expertise here, but my Gatorness um, uh, thinks it sucks because the Gators have a soft cupcake schedule this year, and not just the non-con. Um, and look, it's not our fault FSU sucks these days, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the the way the the games fall within the conference is good because we get LSU at home. The other West team is at Ole Miss, which I don't think would be much of a threat uh, this year in Lane Kiffin's year one. And so Florida's, like you just said, the 2021 opponent that would be added to 2020 in this <laughs> scenario is freaking Alabama. I think we've heard of and them. And we'd have to play them <laughs> again in 2021. So I think it's a horrible idea, and I hope it doesn't happen. Interesting. All right. So again, it's not definite, but it's just one of the things they're talking about for the SEC. Who knows? I heard Jim Harbaugh giving the interview. He even conceded. We don't know if all the Big Ten teams are going to be able to play. My my guess and my speculation is they'll find a way for all the Big Ten teams to play. But even if they don't, who who knows if they can all play? One team you want to talk about for the win totals is Penn State, Brian Edwards, uh, that you're already looking at, looking ahead and projecting all things being equal, Penn State plays, plays their schedule. What do you see there on, on a win total? Man, I, th- I think Penn State's going to be really good this year. You know, they go 11-2 and two last year, eight starters back on offense. Now, only five on defense, but that was a good defense last year. Third in the Big Ten, only gave up 16 points uh, per game. Clifford, uh, first year as a starter, 23-7 to TDI&T ratio. Also had more than 400 rushing yards and five touchdowns. Um, they've got four of their top five receivers uh, coming back. Uh, they got the Journey Brown and Noah Kane in, in the backfield with experience and, and production. I, I see eight wins, and then I see uh, four swing games. But they get Iowa at home. They get Ohio State at home. Mm. And then they are at Michigan and at Virginia Tech in week two uh, will be an interesting one. So, I think Penn State, you know, if they can knock off Ohio State at home, um, you know, they can be in the mix to win their division and uh, maybe be in the playoff picture. Now, a trip to the big house won't be easy, 
But I think Penn State uh, looks like a top 10 team to me. Well, I will say I was there. I was there. Like Howard Coast, I was there for the Cotton Bowl and their win over my Memphis Tigers. It hurt me. It was a great game, but I mean, Penn State powerful on offense with Clifford at quarterback. Journey Brown was, was basically unstoppable in the second half of that game. And you mentioned he's got four of the five receivers, Clifford coming back to this team to take some steps. So very interesting on the Nittanys and how they might look for this year again we love just kicking this around that win total again for penn state right now subject to change and the line to move up or down uh nine and a half mm. uh with a big number on the over minus 210 now i actually um okay i'm looking at five dimes right now it's nine and a half with the over at minus 175 but uh last week i jotted down minus 210 i think that was from FanDuel. yep well, and again, uh, they always are somewhere hovering around that, around the Big Ten championship game and a, and a uh, New Year's Six bowl game. We'll see if that continues to play out for Penn State. Let's just get to the games. Let, let's hopefully get to the games uh, coming up as the summer progresses on. We progress on into Memorial Day weekend, and they've got everything. You guys are analyzing all of these futures odds, UFC, uh, whether it's the golf that's resuming, the NASCAR uh, that's that's ongoing, all of it at Vegas Insider at MajorWager.com as well. Brian, promote everywhere we can read you, find you, and see you socially. Uh, at Vegas B. Edwards is my Twitter handle, and you can also follow Major Wagers Twitter if you wish. That handle is at Major Wager Uno U N O, and uh, yeah, you find uh, once we get back to games, my picks uh, at VegasInsider.com and BrianEdwardsSports.com, and then content galore, especially UFC here recently at MajorWager.com. TJ, as always, thanks for having me. It's fun, and uh, have a good holiday weekend, my man. There he goes. Love talking with Brian Edwards. And we're still going to talk with Mike North in Chicago, legendary sports radio host and personality in that market about the last dance. Matt Zemick will also be here talking last dance with kind of a Western perspective. He's out in Phoenix. Also some tennis talk with Matt Zemick as well. All of that coming up on Three Dog Thursday. Three Dog Thursday is brought to you in part by MyBookie.ag. All right, I know life with sports is still ongoing, but some of it's about to ramp up, whether it's the UFC fight cards, NASCAR starting up, the golf. We're getting back to some sports and some normalcy, as we've been talking about on the podcast. And right now for this Saturday, grab a risk-free opportunity to bet up to $49 from MyBookie on the UFC fight card that's going on this weekend. So again, check out mybookie.ag and use the promo code SGP and they'll take that promo code and match your deposit up to $1,000. They'll match you halfway up to $1,000. You put in $100, they'll put in $50. You're basically getting free money to play with just by putting money in. So they've got the match that's going on right now. And with my bookie, you bet, you win, and most importantly, you get paid quickly. So take advantage of doing that wagering on the UFC fight card or anything else that's out there now, the coming NASCAR, the golf, anything that's resuming, bet on it with mybookie.ag and the promo code SGP.
We're also brought to you in part by the Madden Mayhem Simulation Tournament. We're giving away $10,000 in my bookie credits right now for the best brackets. You can also bet on all of the simulation games, live wagering, prop bets, futures as it all unfolds. Check it out at mybookie.ag. The games are all on Thursday through Sunday night starting at 5 Pacific, 8 p.m. in the East. Go to sportsgamblingpodcast.com slash Madden to find out all the details. Again, up to $10,000 in my bookie credits are available. You got live wagering on the games, on the simulated games with the NFL teams for the 2020 season. Go to sportsgamblingpodcast.com slash Madden for all the details. We're also brought to you in part by Ace Per Head. Ace is the leader in pay-per-head providers, and they make it super easy to start your own sports book. Plus, Ace is offering up to six weeks free over at aceperhead.com slash SGP. That's aceperhead.com slash SGP. We're also brought to you in part by Cushy Dreams. Cushy Dreams is a new company with a full lineup of premium smokable CBD, and it's now shipping legally to all 50 states. And if you use the promo code SGP, you get 15% off. That's Cushy Dreams, K-U-S-H-Y Dreams.com with the promo code SGP. Dogs are barking. Who will get it done this week? Three Dog Thursday now continues. Here again is TJ Reeves. Had to, had to get my guy on in Chicago. Michael North, sports radio legend. You talk about one of the icons in five-day-a-week sports radio all-time in the entire country. It's this man. And it was my privilege to always be on with him on the weekends. We're part of the Fox Sports Radio alumni being on on Saturday nights. Mike was on all the time, Saturday nights, weekends, etc. on Fox Sports Radio for many years. Still a huge personality in Chicago. Got to talk last dance about Michael Jordan and those Bulls and the documentary coming to an end this past weekend. Great episodes with Mike North, who joins me now on Three Dog Thursday. How are you, my friend? First of all, it's great to talk to you, Teach. Second of all, you know what? We had a lot of fun at Fox, and that's a strong alumni group, a group of our great individuals back in the day, uh, both weekday and weekends. Uh, but I'll tell you the fun I was thinking about. I mean, I don't know why I didn't think of John McKay, why I didn't think of Leroy Selman, why I'm not thinking of Mike Allstott. The first guy I think of when uh, the Buccaneers uh, get a hold of Tom Brady is, is T.J. Reeves. That was the first guy because of all the fun we used to have bantering about the Bears and the Bucks. Yeah. Now that we look back, we're so nonsensical because of the two teams. But uh, now you got to be in seventh heaven, my friend. I mean, I hear Disney World's opening soon, and now Tom Brady's walking it, through, like, parks. Uh, it's amazing. And it's surreal at the same time because we haven't seen him hold up a Buccaneer jersey yet in these interesting times. He hasn't been on a practice field, much less at a game. So it hasn't maybe sunk in as much because of this. But, uh, Mike, you got to, I mean, you, you appreciate it. We're, we're all sitting back going, wow, we're amazed two months oh, yeah. later. Two months later, we're amazed that he would leave New England and want to come to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It almost isn't something that you would even consider, the, and yet it no. happened. And yet it happened. It was my last stop. I mean, really, uh, you know, there's a few last stops over the years, and, you know, the Bears have been part of that. Every, every team 
every organization has the you know the last place you want to be at. And 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 you know what? Uh, Tampa Bay wasn't always a chosen place, but I think Tom Brady used his head, realized he was on the oldest team in football, which is New England, uh, knew that Gronkowski wasn't there. I had brought up the uh, idea to my uh, partner at Bears Bar Room with my podcast of Gronkowski months ago going to uh, Tampa Bay, but I couldn't get a straight answer out of anybody, whether he was still New England's property, whether he was free agent, what he could do. And all of a sudden that comes to fruition. And I think that made Tom Brady. I think if Gronkowski would have stayed with New England, Brady would still be with New England. I think that's a good pairing. I couldn't be any happier for you guys. Today I did see him with a Tampa Bay Buccaneer helmet on, which has got to send chills up your spine, Teach. And I also want to see him. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong here. Right out of line for them wanting to change the emblem and have the Patriot. You remember when the Patriot used to snap the ball between his legs? Right, How about right. a Buccaneer doing it? <laughs> just, cha- just stealing the logo almost outright, but just changing the human being and making him a Buccaneer. Yeah, well, I, lo- I love the uh, internet meme that's going around with the the old Patriot logo, except this one is orange and red, and it says the Gronkineers. Ah, and uh, yes. we'll, we'll see. So, yes, there have been sightings. I have several friends of mine that attended that prep high school, Berkeley prep, Academy that I referenced earlier before you came on, and they're sure. going they're they're going crazy because they've got the photos, several photos from the local media emerged of those guys working out. That's all we have right now to go on. There's nothing else at the facility no. like secret uh, FBI documents and photos of Tom Brady well, working I'm out with for guys. Him. Yeah. I'll be rooting for Tom Brady, and I'll be rooting for for Tampa Bay. And I will look, be. I'm a Bear fan first, but I will root for Tampa Bay. Oh yeah, I'm a Tom Brady fan. And look, uh, you know, he did his, he did it in a class way. He ran out, he, you know, the ticket there. He said, it's time to move on. It was done classily by everybody. So, you know, let's, let's see what he can do. Let's see if he can pull a Montana and, you know, you you know maybe get into the playoffs or something like that. And let's talk about two other ones real quick, and then we'll move on to the, to the Bulls and sure. the last dance house. And that was, you look at the other two recent ones, which would be Peyton Manning most recently, a year off from injury, injury questions, succeeded in Denver. He succeeded at a high mm-hmm. level, got him in the Super sure. Bowl twice, twice won one of them. Brett Favre, he's traded to the Jets. People forget the Jets had a 10-win season the year he was there. The mm-hmm. Jets end up releasing him, and then you know what happened mm-hmm. after that because I saw you the other night when they were doing the yep. top 10 and doing the Favre uh, <laughs> recap. There was Mike North giving his thoughts on the list. He goes to Minnesota, and the first year in Minnesota, the second year away from Green Bay, they're in the NFC Championship game. My point is, with you including Montana going to Kansas City, they make the AFC Championship game. There is three... Uh, there are three examples recently, at least two of them fairly recently, where the Hall of Famer or the Hall of Famer to be, because Manning's not there yet, showed up and the team succeeded. So whatever that's worth as an omen or studying history, this has worked out well in the past, Mike. One more thought. Yeah, it has. And and I like uh, what you brought up. I think Manning was on his last legs. Brady's not. Brady saw the team you guys have. You have a terrific team. Look, look, last year... You guys should have won 10, 11 games. And I'm hearing people, the people that cry crocodile tears for Jameis Winston, that's fine. But you can't turn the ball over that many times and be expected 
to be successful. Yep. I think Bruce Arians saw it. I think they were classy to the kid. I think people got to realize that it just wasn't going to work out and that Jameis has to remake himself somewhere else. But this team's ready to go. I'm more worried about the defense than I am right. about the offense. That's my one worry. But, uh, man, to start off with Tom Brady coming out of the tunnel and Gronkowski – I mean, uh, that that's season ticket worth. That's a season <laughs> ticket worth buying. Yeah, no doubt about that. All right, speaking of a ticket, when worth a ticket, yeah. uh, uh, the Chicago Bulls in the 90s. You lived it. You were around. Lo sure. and behold, I'm watching the final couple of episodes of The Last Dance from the late 1990s on episode 9 and 10, the Bulls' final season, and they're going back in the retrospective. Mm-hmm. And there's Mike North at the score in Chicago, the legendary sports station, talking about them playing against the Pacers, etc. First of all, did you know that you were going to be in the documentary? Had anybody tipped you off? Or did you smile like I smiled and many others smiled when they just saw you? Bam, there's my man Northy, North to North. There he is. Did you have any idea? Yeah, you know. Yeah, you know what? I, I got to be honest with you. No, and I'll tell you this. I, I, I thought that maybe more Chicago personalities – should have been in a teach. I think we heard the same amount of, uh, I guess, the same stories. I mean, really, maybe a lot of people heard them for the first time. But, for instance, Steve Kerr, I've, I knew that story years ago. I've been told that right. story. I, I heard that story. I think uh, uh, the new hubbub in Chicago is one of my uh, – uh, uh, partners or friends, David Kaplan with the Horace Grant stuff, that's come to fruition. You know, the Bulls, I guess, the rivals weren't just between them and the Pistons, them and the, the Lakers, them and the, the Knicks. Uh, it was between themselves, apparently, and there's a lot of bad blood, and Michael Jordan did rub people the wrong way at times, and now you're hearing that bad blood coming out. But no, and, and you know, the documentary, 98% of the stuff I knew but uh, the 2% that I didn't know, uh, pretty darn good. Uh, it was it was fantastic, even though we knew what was going to ultimately happen. Convey this. You have been in that market uh, of your whole life for all the teams. Right. What, what was that last season like, or can you compare it to anything, covering it, living it as it unfolded, because you did? Give me some great insight. What was it like? Right. Well, I was with them on, on the last three, especially, well, really all of them. I went on the road with them, whether it was in Miami, whether it was in Carmel, Indiana, where they had to stay outside of Indianapolis, uh, whether we went to Utah, I was there for the pizza deal uh, or the supposed pizza deal. <laughs> it, was, it was a carnival. It was rock and roll. It was Barnum and Bailey. Uh, I remember sitting at the stadium United Center one night with my producer, Jesse Rogers, who now works for ESPN uh, as far as baseball is concerned. And I said to him, I said, Jess, drink this in because this will never happen again, especially in this town where, I mean, there were as many stars coming to United Center, uh, whether it was Madonna sitting six rows down from me or Rip Torn and Keanu Reeves coming on my show in person, just so they could score Bulls tickets, and we'd have them in the skybox. 
I mean, it was a magical time where anybody was Leonardo DiCaprio yep. looking for tickets. We People saw, calling the radio. We saw station. him. We saw crazy. him. We saw Leonardo after one of the games, uh, and he was right. he was in awe. And I know this was early in his acting career, but he was in awe of standing in front of Michael Jordan. That's what it was like. For, uh, Oprah Winfrey has openly talked about being in awe of being around Michael and all these huge personalities in awe of being around Michael. That's what it was like, right? Well, I think I think the coolest guy that I've ever witnessed, my opinion, I love entertainment, I love politics, I love sports. I think the guy had the same mindset as far as politics. He didn't get involved just like Jordan. The coolest guy I've ever seen was Elvis Presley, period. I thought I, he's an icon. Right. There's nobody that's ever going to replace him. I think that we, you know when he walked into a room, everything stopped. Second guy is Jordan. I've been with Sinatra. I partied with Sinatra. I partied with, you know, uh, other people like of that ilk. Uh, I've met President George Bush. None of them come close to Jordan. It was Presley one and Jordan two. I went to see Presley one time, and it was when he was heavy, when he was uh, uh, fat. And uh, it was in 1977, three months before he died, and everybody was still spellbound. That's charisma. That's greatness that people will excuse if you slipped like Presley did. Jordan didn't. Right. Jordan in his last year with the Wizards played 82 games. He didn't play this load management. He said, people are coming to see me. He had Joe DiMaggio was the first to say it. You don't know who's got that one day. They're only going to see me. So I'm going to play my butt off. That's how Jordan was too. Love Mike North. That's how he is. Follow him at North, the number two North. North to North on social media. You hear him on ESPN 1000 in Chicago. Bears Bar Room also in the Bears Bar Room podcast. Love his insights. Spent many a Saturday night conversing with him when yep. he was getting off the air and I was getting ready to be on the air on Fox Sports Radio nationally. We used to get on the, oh. we used to get on the college stuff. All the college stuff, yes. You but, always were SEC heavy because <laughs> you had the advantage. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you have Chicago and you have Jordan, so that was that was a trump card uh, on true. that one. Always, uh, always love uh, mixing it up with Mike North on these subjects. Yeah. Okay, couple of fun ones around uh, the documentary. So you mentioned Horace Grant. Uh, I, I just mm-hmm. I got to put this out there. You know this. It, 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 some of it is sour grapes from him because he won in Chicago. He wanted to leave for whatever reasons for more money. He right. never won. After that, there are a lot of guys. Jordan uh, made them into champions. So any of the complaining by uh, Grant or, or by Pippen, where, where did Pippen go and win a title without Jordan? How did he do when Jordan went and played baseball? For any of these guys, Will Perdue, uh, any of them that, that have any negative things to say, they have rings because of Michael Jordan. They didn't win rings elsewhere. They didn't lead anybody to a ring elsewhere after that, Mike. What's, what's your thought on, on some of the, the belly aching when you're a champ because of Michael Jordan, period? I mean, Horace Grant averaged 13 points and seven boards a game for his career, for Christ's sake. I mean, Pippen averaged 16 and six. He shouldn't be a top 50 player. I'm sorry. He abandoned ship too often, even the other night. I mean, when Larry Bird had a bad back, that means he couldn't walk. He had to lay down. Scotty Pippen's running around game seven going, does anybody have a heating pad? I mean, come on, <laughs> get out there, play the game. I mean, yeah, Grant, to, for Grant and Pippen to to, to to even consider they were mad they were in the shadow shadow he blocked you guys out 
all of you guys. He made Steve Kerr's career. He made John Paxson a general manager for 17 years, plus an announcer. Everybody he touched turned into gold. Luke Longley owns 26 miles of beachfront property in Australia. Are you insane? Are you insane? That's all because of Michael Jordan. And, you know, Horace Grant, I know this as a fact. I know Jerry Reinsdorf. I know Horace Grant. I've been a frequent. I like Jerry, and I've also pummeled Jerry when I thought he was wrong. I know Jerry Reinsdorf and Grant shook hands, and they had an agreement. But Grant got scared and went back to his agent, Jimmy Sexton, and then weaseled out of it. So I don't believe anything Horace Grant says. And you know what? He talks a brave game. He wants to fight Michael. I would have beat my. Where did this all come from? Shut up. Take your three rings. Be happy you played with them where you made all that money. And and, 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 and quit bellyaching like you say, TJ. Period. Yeah, yeah. For a lot of this, be, be grateful for what you had, and we need to be grateful as fans for what we had with Michael Jordan. I heard it oh, in your yeah. voice. Uh, look, the first thing that I will say is it is not new news. If you covered all of this, if you were doing uh, local Chicago or even national, it's not new news that it was not the flu in the famous Game 5 in, in Utah, two th- or 1997 NBA Finals, the first go-around with Utah, that it was bad food or a bad pizza that came out in the documentaries nine and ten the other night i think it was number nine that it Mm -hmm. came out in Uh, i sensed Mm -hmm. in your comment that you're a little dubious about the pizza part of it but this was not the flu that other people had it's not like other people got sick he got some kind of food poisoning or something happened i believe that but that story's been out there, Mike. That's that's been out there 15 years ago. That it was bad food. That's not a new revelation. People people often forget our mem- our memories maybe go fuzzy. But that story was out there in the early 2000s. That it was not the flu. He ate something or did or did something I, that made him sick. I long for the days when half the team would have the flu and everybody would shrug it off and then they'd go on <laughs> to the next city. Now you're shutting down the whole United States of America. Right. You know, if they if, if we handled the flu back then like we're handling it now or this new new excuse me, pandemic, he would have never even been in this game. There wouldn't have been a game. Right. Uh, bottom line is this I've never I've had food poisoning twice. All right. And I was in the food business uh right. for for twenty years. If he got full-blown food poisoning, which if you eat a whole pizza, you're going to sense something's not tasting right eventually. But if you eat a whole pizza, in my opinion, there's no way he could play the next night in, it, with the kind of ravaging food poisoning you would get from eating a whole pizza. Right. Now, did he eat a slice? Did he eat two? Did he smoke too many cigars? Did he just have a slight touch of the flu and have a little bit of tainted food? I will say, yeah, probably, but there's no way if he had full-blown food poisoning. And anybody out there that's had it knows what I'm talking about. You can't even walk the next day. Oh, right. And I know he's a Superman, but I think it was a combination of maybe a little bit of tainted food, maybe, and maybe not feeling all that well and, from a and, late night. And maybe, too, right, and it may be too much of the alcohol in you and cigar in you and yes. adrenaline in you and bad food in you and all of those things, but it, right. it's still, it still adds to the folklore, doesn't it? It adds to oh, the moment. It does. It's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible to watch that performance, whether he was ill uh, from whatever, it was still incredible to watch this, and we, we can't convey enough 
that uh, that every time the game was on the line, you expected him to deliver. And almost like 19 times out of 20 or 49 times out of 50, he did deliver. It was an yeah. incredible expectation, yeah. and he delivered, Mike, over and over again. Well, you know what I love about him now? He's one of us. Because I was watching that documentary, Teach, and you know what? He's turned, it really, it, it, it's comforting to see the greatest athlete I ever saw in person. And I've seen them all, from Peyton uh, to Jim Brown. I mean, all of them. The greatest athlete I've ever known, greatest athlete I ever saw in person, who basically had a vat of scotch next to him throughout the whole documentary, <laughs> who's basically, his eyes were so bloodshot, he looks like a bloodhound, right, and right. who's now got a gut like my father had, only a little bit smaller. But he always wanted that. And I hear now he plays 36 holes every day, every day, 36 holes of golf. And he doesn't care about social media all that much. He doesn't have a Twitter handle, but he doesn't get tied up. He knows who he is. He knows what he's accomplished. He's comfortable uh, being who he is. Did he make some missteps in his career? Yeah, I think going to the Wizards was a mistake. I think he should have gone for the seventh title. I mean, if if you're going to let... Phil Jackson, who sounded like he wanted to leave anyway, but Krause set the stage early. If you're going to let Phil Jackson stop you from winning a seventh title, that would be like the Dallas Cowboys when they switched off from uh, Jimmy Johnson. They fired Jimmy Johnson and hired uh, Barry Switzer. That would be like them saying, we're not coming back. And look, they won another title. So I think Michael Jordan ended it on his own. If Michael Jordan wanted to come back, he could have, but he went on for principle and he backfilled. Hmm. Well, and uh, and still, I, I I like it the way that it also ended, and it made for a great backdrop yeah. for that documentary. That it ends their last memories together in Chicago are a victory in the last moments in Utah. You mentioned about being in Salt. You were there that night in, in Game Six, that deafening Delta Center for that night. I don't know if you were there for that night, but that yeah, that ending. We did that our show. Night, we brought our show. Yeah. So take me back to that, ending it that night with that shot, knowing that more than likely this is it. Michael's not going to be back. Phil's not going to be back. Who knows if they keep Scottie Pippen. Hollywood doesn't write it better the way that it actually ended, Mike, and you were there. Well, you know what the big the big storyline was for days after that? The push-off. That he sort of, like, pushed off. Please. On Russell. And you want to know something. If you look at that, and I've looked at that film a hundred times now, Russell was going that way. Yes. Costas says you it. Don't need, Costas says yeah. it on the documentary. He's already falling over, and it's like a maitre d' putting his hand on you, helping you to the right. table. That's it. <laughs> I, I, was, I think the only thing that I, I – I, first of all, it was, it was surreal. And by the way, I, I, I think when Jordan said, I never took Indiana seriously that much. I didn't. I was more scared of Utah. I was more scared of the Pistons. I was more scared of the Knicks. But to hear Michael say they were scared of Indiana and to look back on it, yeah, it was very close. It was very close. It was it was a seven a, a game seven. But the Utah series, it was sort of like a, it was sort of like a funeral with a marching band behind it, like one of those New Orleans funerals, right? You know what I mean? Where you're marching the dead body down but you're celebrating what happened and you're celebrating the life because I think it was all written out by then. I think Krause's big mistake was just opening his mouth too early, saying what he wanted to do, 
not leaving uh, uh, more than one aisle open, no back down that he had. I thought he did a great job, and Pippen saved, I think, his standing in this documentary because I think it was a tarnishment of him in this documentary, but it saved him by saying that Krause was the best, greatest general manager and that he deserved a lot of credit. So I thought that he bowed out that way in a classy way. But I looked at it as a New Orleans-type funeral when you hear him getting ready to lower the bing on the on the casket while they're playing when the Saints go marching in. Yeah. Hey, just one more on that game six and how it ended. I think this is worth pointing out again. I did so last week with your buddy Lou Canellas, who works still there sure. on the sports casting with Fox guy. 32 in Chicago, and Lou was right there in the arena. They, they were right. losing. They were losing at the end yep. of game six, and you were staring right mm-hmm. down the gun barrel of we're going to be back in two nights for game seven, and God only knows what happens on the road for game seven in Salt Lake. And then in a matter of two sequences, he scores, he steals, he's got the ball in his hands, and he hits the shot, and now that's the epic Hollywood ending. It it had to be incredible to have all of that unfold in about five or six minutes of real time because you were staring at the real possibility it was game seven two nights later, and then it wasn't. Malone Malone didn't see him. Malone didn't see him. He grabs the ball from Malone. He comes down, and 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 this is what 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 was really true about this, is at other times he looked to Pax and he looked to Kerr and other people for the for the last shot. He took the last shot, and uh, it's one of the greatest sequences in in basketball. If you stop and look about it, it, it really epitomizes his career because he was a nine time defensive all star. He was a first time one time defensive player of the year. I thought he should have right. won that more than once. And, I, and let me just say this. I know that they did a Dennis Rodman segment, and they had to put this thing together uh, quickly. All the guys deserve a lot of credit. Uh, but I think Dennis Rodman um, was the number two guy to last three. Uh, you know, I, he was the guy that the most important component, the most important component right. behind Jordan was Rodman being there. You absolutely. Thought. Oh, absolutely. Jordan knew. They needed somebody to rebound the basketball. Jordan accepted Rodman going out to Vegas. Jordan walked over to his home, and not to Vegas, but to his home in Deerfield, Illinois, and Carmen Electra was hiding behind the couch and got <laughs> Rodman to come to practice. So that's how important they knew Dennis was, and when Dennis had to deliver, he did. And what a terrific player and one of the most entertaining, I mean, that Chicago became, you know, we have the 85 Bears, and then we have these guys here. That's two pretty special teams I got to watch. No doubt. Love this man, Mike North. He's given me great insight all the time on everything Chicago, but in particular, Last Dance documentary. Uh, uh, follow him at North to North on Twitter, on social media. He's a great follow. He's a humorous follow with Thank great you, insight. Buddy. Now tell them where they can hear you because digitally they can hear you through ESPN 1000 and your podcast. Where can they hear you? Oh, How yeah. do they find you? Well, you go to iHeart, you go to ESPN 1000, of course, and you go, I'm on Friday nights, uh, we're going to start at 7 o'clock, uh, it's it's called The Odds Couple with Carmen DeFalco, and uh, we're coming back after being off for nine weeks, because I was put on hiatus this show, it's right. a wagering show, right. it tells you where, forget about anything else, baseball, anything else, when The Odds Couple's back on Friday night in Chicago, sports is opening up in this Boom. country, ladies and gentlemen. Boom. 
Okay. And, no- <laughs> and number two, hold on. And number two, I'm on Bears Bar Room. I just did a nice uh, podcast so you could catch it at North to North on Bears Bar Room. Dot com and I'm also going to be picking games as soon as they start again. Once again, at Vegas scores and odds, so keeping busy. But this last dance thing, I've visited with a lot of old friends from JT uh, yeah. to you, TJ, to to people in Chicago, the people in New York, all over the country, uh, Munch Bishop, everybody else. So it's been a lot of fun. And he's in episode nine, by the way. If you haven't seen all of this yet, they're talking to Mike North about the Eastern Conference Finals with Bulls and Indiana Pacers uh, in episode nine, and uh, and he makes a cameo there. He's everywhere. Mike North, thank you. Great to reminisce about the last dance. Again, uh, six titles in eight years. I don't know that we're ever going to see anything like that in sports again, but you guys lived it in Chicago. I appreciate your insight. I love you coming on with me. All right, thank you. you. Yeah. Appreciate it, Dale. And I wish he would have stayed two more years and not retired. We would have won eight. But that's another story for another day. We do roll along, and it is good to bring this guy back on, and it's good to get to converse with him because I've not had a chance to chat with him for a little while. Let's check up on Matt Zimmick who is a man of many hats. Love his insight on college sports, both college football and college basketball. Love his insight as well in the world of tennis when when times call for it. We're going to have fun with that. But also, he wants to weigh in on this conversation with The Last Dance as well. So Matt Zimmick is back with me to talk about all of these different subjects, including Michael Jordan's uh, dominance back in the 1990s. Good to have you. How are you doing out west in the uh, in the Valley of the Sun, staying healthy, progressing along as we head towards Memorial Day weekend, et cetera, et cetera. How are things? Uh, you know, I'm I'm healthy and I'm safe, and my mom is too. So, you know, that's really our main concern for today, next week, next month, and the rest of 2020. Just uh, get through the year healthy. We're all day to day (laughs) and week to week at this point as we continue along. uh, There is no doubt. So as I mentioned, you are obviously well versed in a lot of different things, but I want to have fun with you about the last dance. I've given a lot of opinions and comments and previous guests already have on this very podcast. So I want your insight because you're a guy that currently lives in Phoenix, but you've also been in Seattle, went to school in Seattle. So you've got some great insight into the Bulls of the 90s, having played both the Suns and the Sonics in two of those championships. Give me a little Western perspective on what you thought reliving this documentary series when so much of it was based on the Bulls, but obviously they had to have a Western opponent in the finals uh, for all of those six years. What about it, Matt? What did you think? Well, you know, so let's let's start with the Sonics. The Sonics, should have made the finals in years before 1996. And I think that if the Sonics had made the finals at least once before 96, they wouldn't have been so awed by the Bulls in 96. And also George Carl would have had Gary Payton on Michael Jordan. See, he didn't do that until the Sonics were down 3 nothing in that 96 final series. If the Sonics had been able to play the Bulls, in an, in an earlier NBA finals, or if they had made the finals in 94, you know, they wouldn't have played the, uh, the bulls back then. They would have played the Knicks or maybe the Pacers, um, going through the finals and playing at the highest level. I think that George Carl might've had the awareness that when you're in, when you're playing for keeps in a championship series, you can't withhold your Trump card. You have to have Gary Payton, uh, defending the other team's best offensive player, 
And then the Sonics just wouldn't have been brand new to the finals. I mean, those Sonics. Uh, so, you know, once, once the pressure was off for Seattle in that 96 final series down 3-0, they played two brilliant games in games four and five. So it's hard to ignore the idea that, and that was a team that won over 60 games. You know, that was not a 53-win team. If the Sonics had more finals experience in 96, it might have gone differently for them. Uh, And then as for 1993, um, the main memory, this is is something only a Phoenician could tell you. The headline (laughs) of the Arizona Republic on Monday morning after the – triple overtime game three win for the Suns. Sunbelievable. That was the banner headline in the Arizona Republic. So that's just a little nugget that mm. you wouldn't get from anyone outside of Phoenix. Uh, and then my overall thought on, and I, you know, I also followed the Utah Jazz of the 1990s very closely. The, the unifying thread with the Suns, the 93 Suns, the 96 Sonics, and the 98 Jazz, uh, people – you know, younger fans might wonder how did the Bulls win the NBA championship uh, with Bill Wennington and Bill Cartwright and Luke Longley taking up space at center. Well, you look at those Suns, Sonics, and Jazz teams. They had Mark West, Frank Brickhouse, <laughs> and Greg Ostertag at center, and you know that that's why the Bulls didn't pay a price, and so. This this leads to one of the great unknowns of NBA history. What if we had the Bull Jordan's Bulls against Olajuwon's Rockets in the finals? We never got to see that. That was going to be the matchup which truly tested the Bulls because they would have been absolutely roasted in the paint. I don't and, know. And okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop I'm gonna stop you there. I don't know because we didn't get to see it head to head with Olajuwon. Um, and obviously they won both the titles uh, when Jordan had gone to baseball completely for the 94 finals and then uh, for most of the 94-95 season before the Rockets repeated beating Orlando. But my point is, yes, the Magic beat the Bulls in 95 with Shaq, but they, they didn't get a game off of Chicago in 96 with Shaq. Now, some can argue that Shaq was mentally already out the door wanting to go play for the Lakers. Patrick Ewing couldn't get by those Michael Jordan-led uh, teams as a big man with, a, I mean, even bo- you know before the baseball sojourn and after, Patrick Ewing couldn't get by him. Uh, so I don't know that it's just a rubber stamp that because the Rockets had Elijah Wan that they wouldn't have had those fouls to give with Wennington, Cartwright, like you mentioned, Luke Longley, Scott Williams, whatever big man du jour that you wanted to put in there and would have still found a way. I don't know that I completely... Uh, go along with that, but I, I understand different perspectives on this. I, I will have a I will have a fun one with you. 1993 is one of the first years that I was doing full time sports radio in the Tampa Bay area where I live, five days a week, three hours a day. Huge NBA fan. Obviously, the run that the Bulls are on was iconic, and uh, I'm not connected to Chicago. I'm not connected to Phoenix, but I kept saying that the Suns were going to win this series. Even after they lost the first two games at home, I'm saying every day on the radio, I still believe they will win. When I came in to do the show, Mr. Simic, on the Monday after the triple overtime game, I'm proclaiming on the air, it's over. They're winning game six. They're winning game seven. Chicago had their chance to put it away. Little did I know that I, I shouldn't go against Michael Jordan ever. So while you say sun believable. 
there was young TJ on the radio proclaiming that uh, that the that the Suns were going to go on to win three straight games, win the series in seven. How smart I was going to be, and Michael Jordan ruined that for everybody over and over and over again. No matter who you were in the West, my friend. Well, and you know, and it's uncanny how similar the '93 and '98 finals were. Uh, the Bulls led 3-1 in, in both series, but then lost a potential clinching game five at home. Phoenix and Utah were both able to take the series back out west for a game six, which they both led by three to four points. It was four points for the Suns. It was three points for the Jazz with just under 50 seconds left in game six. And then you had Jordan go to the basket for an easy layup. You know, the, 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 the Suns and Jazz, when they had those three- to four-point leads with about 40 seconds left in the game sixes, they both allowed Jordan to get an easy, uncontested run to the rim for a layup, which then set up the missed possession by the Suns and the Jazz and then set up the winning basket by the Bulls in each of those game sixes. Just it, it, parallel tracks. No and doubt. If either, and if either Phoenix or Utah had been able to hang on in those game sixes, especially Utah, uh, you know, they would have had a great chance in game seven. Utah would have had the great chance in game seven. If you watched the last dance this past weekend, because Scotty Pippen was probably not going to play in game seven. He just, he had, he tried to yes. cut it through game six. Yes. Great point. I would not have been up to par for game seven at all. But would have been toast. Ifs and buts. And, uh, you know, I said this earlier in the show before you came on. I, I am big on karma. What goes around comes around. Don't, don't do to others what you don't want done back to you. Whatever different, par- you know, parallel, parable, uh, metaphor you want to use. When they rolled out in Game 6 with, with the Alan Parsons Project, Eye in the Sky theme, trying to mock or taunt the Bulls with their home intro, I didn't remember, I did not remember that having having happened, but now that we've relived that that's how the Game 6 intro began in 1998, after Jordan and the Bulls have already beaten you the year before, after Jordan and the Bulls have already beaten you in Salt Lake City earlier in the series, do not, do not do anything to provoke Michael Jordan any more than he's already provoked. That, that to me, what goes around comes around doing that. And, and I, you know, here we are, 22 years later, the Utah Jazz have never been in an NBA Finals again. And so that, that right now lives as an all-time Hall of Fame idiotic moment that, we, that haunts you forever. They may not ever be back. You never, you never can rule out never for all time, but they haven't been back in 22 years. That's their last final game. Taunt, taunting Michael, bad move, Matt Zimmick, from where I said, bad move. Neither the Suns nor the Jazz have been back to the finals since they lost those game sixes. I mean, it's, 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 truly, it's truly the kind of moment that um, you, you never recover from. Yeah. And the Sonics, for, for, that, for the record, they've also not been back. Uh, the finals and the, the thunder don't count it's yeah the, the thunder don't count, matter so. I mean, and maybe seattle gets the nba team i love the inside of matt zimmick on all things uh pinpointing the centers on those teams drawing the parallels of the game sixes this is why we love his inside follow him at matt zimmick z-e-m-e-k he is a great follow for all sports 
Uh, he's got a lot of politics on the on the feed right now. He's got a lot about COVID-19, but great insight on a lot of this. couple more on the last dance, then I want to move on to one of your Forte's tennis here on the Three Dog Thursday podcast and how we don't have it right now, but we're reliving some great matches and some great moments. Uh, there has been some criticism um, from a critiquing standpoint of the documentary that Michael Jordan had too much autonomy on what would go in, what would go out. I did not have a problem with that part. What about you, over the course of the 10 episodes, do you feel somehow that that has lessened what we saw and the balance of what we saw? Because Jordan had some say-so of, okay, I I don't want him in there, don't talk to him, that kind of thing, creative control. What do you make of all that? You know, this is, I think, I don't think people were under the illusion that this was going to be kind of a uh, neutral, you know, view from nowhere story. I think people were aware this was going to be Michael Jordan's story presented the way Michael Jordan wanted. I mean, there was, it was it was publicly known that this stuff was in a vault for a long time, and yep. there was a mutual agreement that this material could now be released. So, you know, this is Jordan's telling if someone wants to make a, a, a documentary from Jerry Krause's point of view or Phil Jackson's point of view, I mean, those are great documentary subjects in their own right. Hey, let's make a Phil Jackson documentary. Let's make, make a Jerry Krause documentary. I mean, these are, these are compelling figures, you know, uh, and I think one big insight beyond the last dance, TJ, there are so many great sports documentary topics to be addressed and they're not being addressed. I mean, we should be getting, uh, there was someone uh, who, uh, who I really respect on Twitter, Andy Hutchins. He is the mm-hmm. editor of uh, the Florida Gators site, the SB Nation Florida Gators site, Alligator Army. He said, why don't we have a Sunday night documentary series the way that, like, you know, CBS is rolling out Sunday night at the movies right now, Forrest Gump and Indiana Jones, <laughs> right, those classic right, movies. Right. Why don't we have a sports documentary every, every Sunday night? I mean, people would people would eat it up, especially during the downtimes such as this. When sports come back, you know, February, July, August, three you know slow months of the sports year. Are you telling me if ESPN put a two-hour thirty for thirty at you know ten Eastern, uh, seven Pacific on, on really compelling subjects that people wouldn't go for that in big numbers? You know, if if we if we talked about high-end subjects. That would be great. So, you know, so Jordan had his story here. I don't have a problem with it. Let's just roll out more sports documentaries. The other thing, TJ, just to hit on in terms of my evaluation of the film, uh, two big things. One is the narrator-free format was something that a lot of people were concerned about, but I think the, the film pulled it off great. Yep. Uh, it was a master class in getting out of the way letting the material tell the story itself. I thought that was marvelous. I think in many ways it was the best aspect of the film. Uh, my overall grade for the film, though, I can't give it an A or an A-. minus. I give it a B because there were so many important moments uh, interwoven into the story of the Chicago Bulls in this era that were omitted. Uh, game three of the 91 NBA Finals was the most important game of that series, also the best game of that series, completely ignored. Uh, Bobby Hansen and his role in leading the Bulls' comeback in the fourth quarter in Game 6 against Portland in the 1992 Finals. You have to mention that. It was ignored. 
the mailman doesn't deliver on Sunday. Scottie Pippen's trash talk to the mailman in game one of the 1997 finals. You have to cover that. It was ignored. So many important, memorable moments were absolutely ignored. You know, maybe you don't go four or five minutes of material on those games. You have to at least give a minute to those occurrences. And so this documentary ignored way too many of them for me to give the to give a grade of A minus. He is or a, a tough professor on this here, but man, you're backing it up with things that I didn't even really remember or know. And again, we're getting on 30 years for the ones in the early 90s, so I'm starting to have like senior moments on trying to remember everything that happened in, in what uh, in what sequence. Um, and and you know this, and I, I think you know it, it bears repeating as many different times as we can say it. Uh, I, I said again. I alluded to it uh, a little bit earlier here on the Three Dog Thursday podcast. What what wasn't covered? I mean, you covered the gambling allegation that that somehow Jordan was pseudo suspended. That was addressed. He talked about it. They, they covered both sides. You heard from David Stern, the late David Stern, who was interviewed at least a year ago or more uh, for this. They covered the shooting death of his father and him. Uh, the, the body being missing for almost a month. They couldn't find him. They didn't know what happened. They covered that. They covered the Isaiah Thomas controversy and let you hear from Isaiah Thomas's port of, point of view and Jordan's response. They covered his teammates saying that Michael wasn't a great teammate. M- Michael does not like get along with Will Purdue at all post-playing days. Yet he let the Will Purdue stuff, and the NBA probably said too, hey, for the, for the, uh, the balance of what's going on, it's well known you don't like Purdue and he doesn't like you. That's in there. So, I mean, and Michael responded to Purdue's criticism about not liking his teammates or picking on people or going after people to challenge him and try to make them better. So I, I, I again, cha- I'm not saying you, I again challenge everybody. Fi- find something that, they, uh, that was of a negative nature against Michael Jordan that they didn't bring up, that they didn't cover. They obviously did. Um, uh, for a lot of this. So uh, you've had some great thoughts on that, and I, I'm with you that I, I hope it spawns much more of these. I think it's fascinating that this was three-plus years worth of work. And and how about, Matt, that the final episode was not finished, was not edited until virtually a week ago from right now when you're hearing this podcast. They didn't finish episode 10 until late last Thursday, late last week before it was put to bed. So still working on the three-year labor of love as recently as last week. How about that? Well, you know, because it was originally slated for June, but in the pandemic, they they moved it all up so that that's not particularly surprising yeah and great that uh, you know they were kind of playing off of uh, what what has been succeeding? What is the audience gravitating uh, off of here on the first few airings of, of the uh, episodes? And then try to uh, enhance that. It is still iconic uh, to watch and, and to consider how many times over and over again Jordan came up so clutch when they had to. And they never lost. They never lost in any of those finals uh, throughout that great run. All right. Uh, okay. So a fun one again, as we talk with Matt Zimmick and I love his insight on all things, but especially tennis, he's all over it. Great tennis podcast for you to find is tennis with an accent, Matt and Sakob Ali tennis with an accent on the podcast, wherever you find podcasts, go find them, go listen to them. We're having to do without because of the coronavirus and the shutdown of sports worldwide. We're having to do without tennis. We've missed the major championship at the French open for the first time since World War II, we will miss Wimbledon. But lo and behold, Matthew, 
I stumble earlier this week on Monday night on the 40th anniversary of McEnroe Borg in the in the epic 1980 final with and you know what I'm coming to because I texted you about it with the all-time tiebreaker uh, to to match any other tiebreaker in terms of drama, great shots, great moments, and where it was being held. Uh, I cannot believe that was 40 years ago, but it was. So I was riveted. I stopped what I was doing to watch that tiebreaker for some 15 minutes. It's epic. It's epic, my friend. So what what are your thoughts now that I've shared that? We don't have tennis in the present day right now, but we can reminisce with something like Board McEnroe 1980 Wimbledon. Yeah, so the, the first thing that, that comes to mind with that tiebreaker, is, and that tiebreaker was 1816 for John McEnroe. So it is called, that tiebreaker is called the War of 1816. <laughs> um, what, what stands out about that tiebreaker, which lasted like, you know, about 25 minutes or so, uh, because, you know, every six points, the two players have to change ends, that they're put, playing from both ends of the court. The rationale being that, you know, if there's sun or there's wind, that players are at both yep. ends of the court equally. Yep. So that, that those change of ends. Well, and we should. I, I assume, let me, let me interrupt. Unfortunately, uh, I should have done this before I, I teed you up, that we assume that everybody understands what we're talking about because you and I know what we're talking about. If you're not hardcore into tennis, uh, what's it been, Matt? Probably 1970s. They went to the shortened tiebreaker. So you're playing sets to six games and you have to win by two games. Well, they decided to start shortening some of them from going extra, extra long by saying, we're going to play a tiebreaker once it is a six-all score in games in a set. The tiebreaker is the first person to seven points and you must win by two. It was not uncommon that a tiebreaker might go to eight, nine, ten points before somebody won by two. Very uncommon to get to 13, 14, 15 points before you win by two, much less an 18, 16 like you're referencing, much less from two Hall of Fame immortal players. That's the backdrop. So I thought it I thought it good to interject that. Forgive me for derailing you. Continue on the war of eighteen sixteen and the tiebreaker, McEnroe Borg. Okay, well, you brought up that history, so I have to reference it before going back yeah, to the Board sure. McEnroe tiebreaker. Sure. So, tennis, so for people who don't know, and you're correct, in 1970, a man named Jimmy Van Allen, A-L-1-L, A-L-E-N, uh, created the tiebreaker, debuted at the U.S. Open, and then it made its way to the other major tennis tournaments, French, Australian, uh, and Wimbledon. But the, the reason why the tiebreaker was finally invented in 1970 is that in 1969 at Wimbledon, first round, Pancho Gonzalez, a, a legend of the game, uh, got tangled into a five-set match that went over five hours. And there was no tiebreaker then, so they would play like a the sets, non-final sets, went 24-22 and 16-14. And I think there was another one that went 9-7. So, like, players back then, you could play a match with a line score of 18-16, uh, 2018. <laughs> you could play five sets that went, like, 40 games. So, so that that's what was the impetus. That match in 1969 at Wimbledon was the impetus for the tiebreaker. Now, here's the other note about the tiebreaker. Wimbledon, unlike the U.S. Open, played tiebreakers in the mid-1970s for several years at 8-8. Eight, eight. That went through 1978. 
So when we think about this Borg McEnroe tiebreaker in 1980, if it was two years earlier, they wouldn't have. They they would still have played a, a, an eight-eight fourth set if they had gone that far. So you know, interesting. The the, the 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 contours of tennis history are very particular, and I'll have more, I'll have more to say on that in a little moment. So now we go back to the actual fourth set tiebreaker in Borg McEnroe. If you watch that tiebreaker, you know, if, and if you've never seen it before, you know, you can pull it up on YouTube. The the thing to note about that tiebreaker. Borg and McEnroe were going for the lines on every shot. And, you know, this is, if you, if you haven't studied tennis, you know, there are many different ways to play, but there is a school of thought where the, the, the best strategy in tennis is to make the other guy miss, to make the other guy hit the ball long or wide, whatever. And then there's the other strategy, and that is just to hit the perfect shot as soon as possible don't let a gifted tennis player on the other side of the court, don't give him any chance to hit a neutral ball, you know, just a standard conventional rally shot where you're not trying to end the point. So Borg and McEnroe, what made that four-set tiebreaker special, they were going for lines and corners pretty much all the time because they knew that if the other guy got a ball, you know, anywhere in the middle third of the court with the ability to, to hit a shot, they, they, they knew that the other guy was going to do something special with it or at least – would have the chance to put them in deep trouble. So there were some missed volleys. Uh, McEnroe left a few volleys on set points. Uh, McEnroe had seven set points in that tiebreaker. Mm. He converted the seventh one. On some of the set points, McEnroe sprayed a volley wide. Borg netted a volley when he had one of his five championship points. Max points. In that tiebreaker, so I was going to say, all right, so let me pressure, let me but stop they were you. Always going for the line, sure. and that that's what that's what makes a match so memorable. This was they were going for each other's throat. They were not playing patty cake. They were not playing like a South American yeah. clay court player who just <laughs> lazily rolled a top spin shot back and just waited for a mistake. No, they were going for the absolute corner and line and for the chalk on every point. I love that, and I was interrupting again for a reason, because McEnroe had saved several championship points during the set, and then you say he saved how many in the tiebreaker where where Borg was a point Five. away? He Five of two, them. He <laughs> saved two championship points earlier in the set. Borg was serving for the match at 5-4 in the fourth and set. That's, and that's McEnroe when I picked it up. a series of passing shots to break oh. back for 5-all. That's when I picked it up the other night on the TV, and I'm texting you going, hey, I just stumbled on this, and I knew they were headed for the tiebreaker, and you got to watch. And I realize, folks, that we don't often talk tennis here on the Three Dog Thursday podcast. But if you say to anybody that is a true sports fan, Borg, McEnroe, I mean, Matt, they know who we're talking about. It's like if you don't follow the NBA and you say Jordan and the Bulls or Shaq and Kobe, they know who you're talking Jeter, they know who you're talking about. Um, uh, Brady, Patriots, and then you go to individual sports. If you say Tyson, if you say Federer, if you say Borg, McEnroe, if you say Wimbledon, they're more than likely going to know about this tiebreaker. And you're right. They were going for outright winners, great shots, diving for them. Uh, McEnroe down on the ground, Borg down on the ground after points. You could not have gone to Hollywood and scripted a, a, a dramatic, and, and they've made documentaries, the Fire and Ice documentary on Borg and McEnroe, and that, that tiebreaker just is epic to have watched. Phenomenal. 40 years, I can't believe it's 40 years later, Matt. Yeah, and so, you know, in the big picture, people will say, 
which is better, you know, 2008 Federer Nadal or 1980 McEnroe Borg? And it's, you know, a classic sports bar question that you ask to your friends. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, as I as I think about it, you know, we're now 12 years on from Federer Nadal at, at Wimbledon, and the more I go along, and the more I you know check back on Borg McEnroe 1980, I think the better the best answer is we really shouldn't have to choose. These matches are parallel events, and I'm going to explain why. First off, they both featured an extended a, a, an extended fourth set tiebreaker uh, in in 2008. Federer Nadal. Federer won a fourth set tiebreaker 10-8 after saving championship points wow. in his own right. Uh, and and Federer Nadal traded brilliant passing shots late in that tiebreaker. Nadal put off a, pulled off an unreal passing shot at 7-7 in that tiebreaker to get championship point. Federer then saved championship point with a down-the-line pass of his own on the very next point. So you had an extended fourth set tiebreaker. The player who won the fourth set tiebreaker in each of these matches then lost an extended fifth set. It was 8-6 Borg in 1980, and it was 9-7 Nadal over Federer uh, in uh, 2008. So you had the person who lost the fourth set tiebreaker after having championship points Mm. bouncing back in the fifth set displaying a champion's will to win the title. And then here's one more connection. And you referenced the tiebreaker system. And I mentioned that in 1978 at Wimbledon, tiebreakers were at 8-8 instead of 6-6. And that, you know, so the 1980 final barely missed that change in the tennis rules. You know, the the match was redefined because that, that rule was changed. So Federer Nadal was also close to a significant change at Wimbledon, but it was on the other side. The change had not happened yet. And the change that had not happened yet in 2008, TJ, a roof over Wimbledon. A roof over Wimbledon began in 2009, the very next year. If you had a roof in 2008, guess what? There's no rain delay. There were two different rain delays in that Federer-Nadal final. and, And also... If you have a roof with lights, the end of that match isn't played in you know the fading twilight just after 9 p.m. local time. And 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 by the way, if, in case you don't know or anyone in the listening audience doesn't know, if Federer Nadal had played a 16th game in that final set, and the match was tied at 8-8, that final set was tied at eight, they would have gone to Monday. Yeah, that that was going to be it. But because Nadal closed it out at 9-7, they were able to finish that match on that night. And that's part of why the match lives in the public memory, because you had the full drama of the moment. Returning for Monday would have been such a buzzkill, because the match would have ended for, for after like 10 minutes, maybe, after you know this was a four-hour, 48-minute match on the Sunday. So the fact that it closed... On Sunday night, it adds to the aura and the lore. Uh, but but if it had been one year later, they could have played under the lights, and who knows, they might have gone six hours. Love, oh my gosh, uh, love the insight of Matt Zimmick on all things historical. We were talking last dance. Again, find the Borg-McEnroe uh, tiebreaker, Wimbledon 1980. We're, we're without the tennis. Give me a quick uh, answer here 
we hope that we will see tennis of some kind later this year. We know there's no Wimbledon. We're hopeful that maybe a U.S. Open could be held in New York, may have fans, may not have fans. What are you guys hearing? What are you guys talking about on the resumption worldwide of tennis, the timeline, the hope, any of that real quick? So, you know, given, given how hard hit New York uh, has been by the pandemic, I would, I would highly doubt that you'll see a U.S. Open this season. I think that if there's anything in tennis this year, keep in mind that most of the top players and mo- just generally most tennis players, so certainly not all, but most, you know, they're headquartered in Europe. So if anything happens this year, remember that Roland Garros, the French Open, uh, and this was not a move made in coordination with any other tennis governing body, but Roland Garros just decided on its own unilaterally to reschedule its tournament for late September through early October. There have been talks that there, that Roland Garros will hold its tournament without fans, but you know, to get that TV money in kind of mm-hmm. like what football is trying right. to do here in the United States. So because of the concentration of players in Europe and the fact that the top players and the top ticket sellers, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, Dominic team, they're all in Europe. I think if there's, if there's one big tennis tournament this year, it's going to be Roland Garros in late September. I wouldn't necessarily expect it, but if we get something, that is probably the best bet at this point. Uh, it's probably going to be the only significant tournament because, you know, Indoor um, tennis or, or indoor events because of air conditioning, you know, that's been identified as a spreader for, for the, for the uh, virus. So you won't see the indoor tournaments that are part of October or November. It's probably going to be the French Open before zero fans or nothing. Mm. And uh, in, terms of, in terms of like full-scale return to tour activity, I think if you told, if you ask people right now, would you be – satisfied with like with tennis returning in the european season in 2020 uh, 2021 um and and the french open in 2021 being the first full-scale you know appreciably normal tennis tournament uh on the counter i think i think people around tennis would say you know what that's not bad that would not be terrible because you'd get the french open and wimbledon back Next year, the, if you miss the Australian Open in, in, in January of 2021, TJ, the Australian Open was the one tournament to have a run this year. So missing that would not be uh, an overwhelming sure. you know, tragedy. If you get the French Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open next year, I think people around tennis would be relatively satisfied with that. Well, and obviously Australia, we know this geographically, is isolated. Uh, as a continent, and if the coronavirus is better there, there's a possibility you could play that without fans. I keep jokingly saying we're only in May. We don't know June. We don't know August. We don't know September. Uh, it may be it may be that things are better by the time we get to the middle of the summer, and that is summertime in Australia in, in January. That's obviously uh, potentially conducive to being able to play even without fans. So maybe you could play. Who knows? We don't know this stuff right now. We just hope we get some tennis back on the court. For right now, we relive epic matches. And Matt Zimmick has been doing that with me on that Borg McEnroe tiebreaker. I was just thinking of this. we got to leave uh, here in a sec. But to go back 
And remember 1980 had the U.S. Olympic hockey team upset in February that 1980 uh, also had the Pittsburgh Steelers winning right around that time, their fourth Super Bowl in, I I believe, late January of 1980 when they beat the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, You also had in 1980 uh, several more, that Borg McEnroe tennis, yes. Um, In the NBA, Magic Johnson as a rookie with the Lakers wins the NBA title against Philadelphia. The Philadelphia Phillies uh, win over the Whites, uh, over the uh, Kansas City Royals in 1980. Pete Rose, Mike Schmidt, Tug McGraw, Steve Carlton, and those Philadelphia Phillies. 1980 was a heck of a sports year, and I do not want to accept that that was 40 years ago. I can't do it. Yeah, we're getting older. I know. <laughs> It's amazing when we go back and look. What a treat. Again, follow him at Matt Zemek, Z-E-M-E-K, on Twitter. Find Tennis with an Accent, the podcast. Tennis with an Accent, Matt and Saqib Ali on Tennis with an Accent for the podcast. Always great to catch up with you. You're so well-versed, and it's a history lesson. You're like a professor on this stuff. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you hopping on Three Dog Thursday. Thanks, and just you can catch us at accent underscore tennis. And there you go. That will do it here for this edition of Three Dog Thursday. Wherever you found us, however you found us, uh, through sportsgamblingpodcast.com, through the Sports Gambling Podcast Network of Shows. Thank you for doing so. If you got us, if you got us through a social media link on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, anywhere that you found us through the link, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spreaker, wherever you get podcasts, you can find Three Dog Thursday. Subscribe. It comes automatically to you on Thursdays. Uh, we keep grinding along here through the month of May and headed towards this summer and hopefully the resumption of the NBA and the NHL playoffs, the start of the baseball season. We've got NASCAR back. We've got the UFC back, boxing to be back uh, in June, uh, as well as the PGA Tour and the golf and major championships to be played. Uh, We're looking forward to all the sports. Again, subscribe away, and we'll be covering all of it and talking underdogs when it becomes relevant because that's what we do. That's our specialty here as part of Three Dog Thursday. Again, follow the show at Three Dog Thursday. Follow us at Three Dog Thursday. Follow me at Buck Sideline Guy, B-U-C, at Buck Sideline Guy. For Brian Edwards of MajorWager.com, Mike North in Chicago, North to North on Twitter, as well as Matt Zimmick out west at Matt Z-E-M-E-K, Matt Zimmick. I am merely T.J. Reeves, and we thank you for being with me. Enjoy Memorial Day weekend. Be safe. We've got some sports resuming, a lot looking up with positivity. Be safe. Be healthy. Thank you for being with me on the only digital radio show devoted exclusively to those underdogs. It's Three Dog Thursday. Bye.